All right, good morning again, everybody. I say again because we were just in here a little while ago for a small group Bible study that was not a small group, it was a large group because we had breakfast this morning. How many of you were here for breakfast? How many of you thought it was fantastic? How m- yeah, say thank you to Aaron's class for fixing it, serving it, it was a good thing. Uh, that's always a good time uh, when we get together and share a meal like that. We do it every once in a while, and so you won't want to miss the next one if you miss this one. Do you have your Bibles this morning? All right, you need to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we are this week. Last week, we wrapped up what, what turned into a very lengthy discussion about family issues. We talked about sex and marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness and widowhood. In all of these circumstances, Paul is giving the Corinthians and consequently us principles to live, to live by, to honor God. Last week, we specifically talked about living with urgency and freedom and focus and said that no matter your circumstances, whether you are single or widowed or married or divorced, no matter your circumstances that you find yourself in, you serve Christ there, right? Serve Him like crazy. Give your energy, give your time, give your affection, give your attention to serving Christ where you are. Don't be longing and thinking that your whole life hinges upon your status, your marital status, or your circumstance, or your situation. Serve Him in the circumstance where you are right now. Uh, David Platt, uh, Friday night, talked about a lot of these same issues. And one of the things he said was, in this whole process of deciding or um, discerning, uh, if I have a gift of singleness or a gift of marriage, he said, simply, you just need to look at your life. If you're married, you have a gift of marriage. Serve Christ in your marriage. If you're single, you have a gift of singleness. Serve Him, at least for now. You have the gift of singleness. Serve Him as a single person. We complicate it too much. Simply serve Him where you are. Where are you? Serve Him. That's, that's, the, that's the point of chapter 7, and I hope that you get that. This week, we're going to shift gears. Paul is going to move on to a different issue. Um, remember, he's in a portion of this letter where he is answering questions that have come from the Corinthians to him about very specific issues, and today we're going to talk about one uh, concerning meat sacrificed to idols and whether or not it is appropriate to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And some of you, uh, at this point, check out entirely um, because this is, this is not an issue that we deal with today. Uh, Matt, Matt, I saw that last night you said you were browning four pounds of sausage for the breakfast this morning. Was that sausage sacrificed to idols? Did you check that out before you started browning it? No, didn't check it out. Probably wasn't, right? Probably most of the meat uh, that we consume in America has not been slaughtered in some pagan uh, cultic ritual of sacrifice. When you go to the grocery store, you don't think about that, do you? You, you don't ask, hey, where did this meat come from? Uh, was this, did this participate in any kind of pagan ritual before it got to the grocery store? You just don't deal with that, right? And so in some sense, there's a tendency when we come to a text like this to say, oh, this is, this is foreign, this is old, this is kind of crazy uh, that, that they're dealing with this, and it really has nothing to do with me. And so I'll let the, I'll let the guy preach, and I'll let him talk, and, and we'll go home and eat some meat <laughs> for lunch, um, and, it, and we won't think about it anymore. What, what we want to do today is acknowledge that, acknowledge that the circumstances we face are not like these circumstances, that we don't deal with this particular issue here in the United States. However, just like last week, there are principles at stake here that do apply to our circumstances and issues that we face. Um, Probably, if you boil this down, what you see in the text today is a morally neutral issue. Eating meat sacrificed to idols or not eating meat sacrificed to idols, it really makes no difference. 
It is not an issue that is clear-cut. You can or you cannot. The question is not about can or cannot. Is it allowed or is it not allowed? Is it sin or is it not sin? The question is, what will my participation in this morally neutral activity do to the people around me who may not see it as a morally neutral activity? Because what you're going to see in the text today is there are a group of people at Corinth, a group of believers. This is all about believers, by the way. What we're talking about is interchurch relationships. We're, we're talking about the relationships within the body and how they are impacted by this. And one group of Christians in Corinth, which Paul will refer to as the, the stronger brothers, understand that there's only one God. And they understand that these idols are no such thing. That there are no other gods except Yahweh and He alone. He alone is God, right? And so these, these meats that have been sacrificed to these idols have been sacrificed to a nothing. And therefore they're just meat. A, an idol that is nothing cannot contaminate meat, right? An idol that doesn't even exist cannot contaminate the meat. And so these stronger brothers say, we are free in Christ. There is only one God. We can eat, and it is not sin to eat. All right? That's one group, which Paul refers to as the stronger brothers. You'll see him talk about another group within the church who, although they know there is only one God, although they understand it because it's kind of an orthodox Christian um, a declaration that there is only one God, they haven't quite come to that understanding practically. Practically in their lives, they do recognize all of these idols and all of these temples in Corinth and all of these other gods, and they think that those gods still have some power. And because they have been converted to Christ, out of that pagan background, out of those cults and those idols and those temples, they've been converted to Christ and taken out of that. In their devotion to Christ, they don't want anything to do with that anymore. And in their weakness and in their immaturity, they think that those things still hold some power. And so they say it is sin to eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols. You catch what's going on here? So there's one group that is saying, we understand there is only one God and to eat this meat is not sin. And another group in the church is saying, we don't have that understanding. We think idols are real and we will not eat that meat and neither should you. And so there is this tension. And the reality is, what you're going to see in the text, is that this is a morally neutral deal. It doesn't have a morality, the meat sacrificed to idols. But what matters most is the relationship between that guy and this guy. And that's what I want you to see today. We will not accomplish the goal today if we walk out of here with a list of rules. Things we can do and things we cannot do. That is not the goal today. The goal today is to love one another. And to display that love in our actions, in our behavior. Does that make sense? Maturity isn't a list of rules. It isn't a list of I do's and I don'ts. It is a love for God and a love for our neighbor, especially for our brothers in Christ. And that's what you're going to see in the text today. So as much as this text is about meat sacrificed to idols, it is not. It is about the love of one brother for another. Let's check it out. Chapter 8. It says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. 
For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Verse 8 is a key. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Verse 9 is also key. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. Uh, Thank you for principles that you reveal to us in it, for life, for living, for serving you, principles for living in harmony and unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. God, ultimately, we thank you that, that we come to you not by food, or rule come to you by faith come to you in grace because of Jesus Christ his sacrifice on our behalf his death burial and resurrection for us we come to you in him not in our flesh help us to remember that today Develop in us, as we study this text today, a deep, ruling, superseding love for the brethren. And may that influence everything we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've thought uh, a lot this week about some modern parallels to this, and I really struggle with, I've identified some, but I'm almost afraid to talk about them. Uh, in, in a setting like this, for fear that I will do exactly what this text forbids me of doing in, in strengthening you to do something that might be sinful to you. Even though, even though there may be legitimate freedom in Christ to do that thing, uh, if you are thinking in your mind you cannot do that thing, I don't want by my preaching today to facilitate in you sin, to destroy you, the brother for whom Christ died. And so I have this whole list of examples in my head of modern day parallels to this that I don't want to talk about because I'm afraid that some of you might walk away saying, Chris said we could. And, and that's not the point. That's not the point at all. I'll give you two uh, little quick examples, though, uh, from uh, my life in Mississippi. Um, one, one thing happened when we first moved to Mississippi um, that, that I was not prepared for. Uh, we were uh, on a Sunday afternoon after service, and I told someone that I had had a really busy week and that I needed to cut my grass on Sunday afternoon between the morning service and the evening service. And it was like this hush went over the whole, the whole room. And there was this, you can't do that. You cannot cut your grass on Sunday afternoon. And I thought, yeah, I can. Yeah, I work all day Sunday. 
That's kind of what I do. You expect me to work all day Sunday, and i got to cut the grass, and it's no big deal. I've set aside the whole day for worship. In fact, it will be restful for me to cut the grass after preaching all day. It'll be a good thing. And I, 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 In other words, I was totally convinced in my mind from the Scriptures for a lot of reasons, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the Sabbath is on Saturday and not on Sunday, right? Second of all, Christ fulfilled all of the law, Right? And we don't come to Him in Sabbath. We come to Him in grace through faith, right? And so in my mind, I'm totally confident I can, I can cut the grass on Sunday and not be sinning. But these brothers of mine said, no, that is sin. And they were totally weirded out about the whole thing. And so you know what I did? Never once cut the grass on Sunday as long as we lived in Mississippi. I just didn't do it. It's not, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it to try to explain why you could cut the grass on Sunday or why, you know, there may be freedom in Christ to do it. This love for my brothers overruled it, right? There's another one, another example of this. There was a, a golf course, one of the top ten public golf courses, according to Golf Digest, public courses that you can play um, in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Fantastic golf course, and I like to play golf, and I wanted to go play there so bad. But it was in a resort that had a casino, Right? They had a water park and a fantastic golf course and a casino. And I was like, man, I really want to play that golf course. But there were so many people like, you can't play that. You can't play a golf course because it's connected with this casino. And by playing the golf course, you're gambling, which I still don't get the connection there. I wasn't gambling on the golf course. I just wanted to play golf. I wasn't even going to go to the casino. I was just going to go to the pro shop, right? But it was this, oh, no, you can't do that. So you know what I did? I didn't play that golf course ever. I'm going to go back someday, though, and play it. And I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to tell anybody. Right? But there were things like this where I think, I think I could have said, no, I have the right to play the golf course. I could have said, no, it's my right. I can do this and you can't stop me. And shame on you for trying to stop me. I could have said, no, I can cut my grass on Sunday afternoon. And shame on you for trying to hold me back and not let me cut my grass on Sunday. Who are you to tell me what I can do? I feel like I'm totally, totally justified and free in Christ to do these things, and you're telling me I can't. I could have done that, right? And what's that accomplish? Well, in my case, it would have accomplished a new job. (laughs) Or no job, right? That's what it would have done in my case. But it certainly would have produced only conflict between brothers. And we don't want that, right? Is it okay that I haven't played that golf course? You can tell I'm a little bit bitter about it still, so... Is the end of the world, though, that I never got to play that golf course? No. Is it a big deal that I cut my grass on Saturday instead? No, although if you really want to get in debate, that was a problem, right? That's a Sabbath problem. Those things aren't aren't a big deal. Morally neutral issues that aren't worth fighting over. And I have an obligation to these brothers not to offend them, not to destroy them. And that's a couple of modern-day parallels. Uh, There are a lot more, and I hope that you will tease those out. Uh, as you go home today. So check it out in verse 1. In verse 1, he introduces the topic. And the topic is this meat sacrifice to idols. And a lot of us would look at this and say, oh, couldn't they have just got meat from somewhere else? No. Almost all of the meat that was sold in Corinth had been sacrificed at some kind of temple. They didn't have huge uh, herds of cattle or herds of goat or bunches of pigs, uh, and people were raising them just to eat them. They were raising them. They were raising these animals to offer them and sacrifice these pagan gods. And so most of the meat that was available to be purchased or to be eaten in Corinth had been slaughtered in a ritual for a pagan god. And when they did these rituals, a third of the meat 
would go to the priest. The priests of the pagan temple would get a third of the meat. A third of the meat would be consumed on the altar of sacrifice. It would be burnt up. And then the other third would go to the person who had brought the offering. And that person and the priest would a lot of times sell the extra meat to the market, and then the market would sell it to the general public. What I'm getting at is that we read this and we say, oh, there's an easy way around this. There's an easy way around this meat sacrificed to idols. Get meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols, and then it's not an issue at all. Problem is, there wasn't any meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols. And so this was an issue that was right in front of them, and they had to deal with it all the time. All right, So don't dismiss this as, a, as some kind of weird technicality that Paul is getting hung up on, or that the people in Corinth were getting hung up on. This was a real deal that was right in their face all the time. And it was kind of a big deal, right? If you've got a group of people who are now Christians, who had grown up in those pagan rituals, who had grown up worshiping in those pagan temples, they were used to all of that, and now they've been converted to Christ, you can see why there's some tension about what do we do with this? Do we eat it? Do we not eat it? Do we stay away from it? If I, if I pull away from it completely, I've got to pull away from the whole city. I've got to pull away from every social gathering. I've got to pull away from every relationship. I've got to offend a bunch of people by not eating at their barbecue or at their party. I, I've got to really pull away from a whole bunch of people. So this is a big deal. What I'm getting at in this first little bit is this is a big deal, not some dismissive secondary issue. Second thing he says in the first verse is huge. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. In fact, this was a little bit of a dig at the Corinthians who said, yeah, we've got knowledge. We've got all knowledge. We've been given everything that we need. We've got plenty of knowledge. We've got knowledge running out our ears. That's the way they talked. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. And then he says this, knowledge makes arrogant. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Some of your translations say knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This is a big, important principle. He says, knowledge is necessary It is essential, but it is not sufficient. You can't just have knowledge. You've got to also have love. And you can't just have love. You've got to also have knowledge. And what he's dealing with here is a group of people who have knowledge. He's going to talk about them in the next few verses, how they understand that there is only one God, that the idols are no thing in the world, that it's nothing, that the meat is nothing. Eat it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They have this knowledge, but they can't just operate in that knowledge. They've got to couple that knowledge with love for the brethren and let love even reign over their knowledge. It's what he's going to get at today, that love must reign over our knowledge. And and knowledge can be a very dangerous thing. It can be a very dangerous thing to know a lot. It can produce in us pride. It can produce in us snobbery. It can produce in us arrogance. And so he says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And in verse 2 he says, what we need is knowledge with humility. He says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. He says, if you think you know it all, you've got a big problem. If you are proud of your knowledge and your understanding, if you are proud even of your theology and you walk around with that pride, you don't know like you should know. Because true knowledge, godly knowledge, biblical knowledge is always accompanied by humility and love. Always. Always. And that's what he's going to get at. Look what he says in verse 3. This is huge too. He's talking still about knowledge, setting the scene. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And I love this. I love this. Because life Here is not about what you know, it's about who you know, right? It's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And Paul says in this text, it's even more about who knows you. So don't think that just because you have a a large understanding, a good understanding of the scriptures, 
and you can, you can debate the finer points of theology, that you can articulate deep doctrine, don't think that that's enough to save you. If you love God, you, are not, you not only know Him in a relational sense, not just about Him, but you know Him in relationship, but most importantly, He knows you. And I think Joe's going to talk about this a little bit in a couple weeks, right? He's going to talk about when, when Jesus says to these people, depart from me, I never knew you, right? When he casts them out, these false teachers, these false prophets, these folks who said, oh, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do such and such? He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. What matters most in the world is do you know God and does God know you? And so the question is, how do you get to know him? And how does he get to know you? The answer is through Jesus Christ, right? That's how we have relationship with him. That's how we love him is through Jesus Christ. Jesus who came to die on the cross for our sins because we are all sinners and sin must be punished and the punishment for sin is death. But yet God loves us and he is full of grace so he sends Jesus to come and take our sin and take our death and he dies in our place and not only does he die, he is raised, right? Victorious over sin and death and hell and he offers to us victory and life and forgiveness in him by grace as a gift through faith, right? By believing, not by doing, by believing is how we receive it. And that's good news, right? And that's how we have a relationship with him, how we know him and he knows us. It all happens through Jesus. In fact, you'll see that the little theology bomb in the middle of this text is this business about we are created by God and for God through Jesus Christ, through him, by him, by the father, for the father, through the son, by the son. He's the mediator. He's the go-between. He's the one who reconciles us to the Father. So, in verses 1 to 3, Paul talks about this idea of knowledge, and he says, knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is necessary, it is essential, but it is not sufficient. There must also be love. All right? Then he begins to develop his argument, and the way he develops this argument is, yes, but. And this is what he does all throughout 1 Corinthians. We've seen it already. Yes, that's true. He's going to affirm the stance of these stronger brothers. He's going to say, yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. There is only one God. Yes, that's true. Meat does not commend you to God. Yes, that's true. But there's another principle that needs to come into play here as well. And so he begins to develop the yes part in verses 4 to 6. Look what he says. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know... Notice he's lumping himself in with the stronger brothers here, with the ones who have this understanding. He says, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Hallelujah for that, right? Hallelujah for that, that there is only one God. And we need to affirm that. And we need to give a, a woof and an amen to that. There's only one God. We, we don't come here today having chosen from the pantheon of gods that it actually exist and say, we think Yahweh is the one that's real. No, Yahweh's the only one that's real. That's the truth. That's the truth. The rest of them don't even exist. He'll refer to them later on as so-called gods. So-called gods. There are people that think they are real, but there's only one real one, right? And that will be revealed someday. That will be clear for everyone someday. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, right? Only Lord. He's the only Lord. He's not just one of many. And we know that. There's only one God. There's only one God. I told you a minute ago we need to affirm that and woof and amen. And I've said it five times since then. You haven't done it once. There's only, there's only one God. Only one God. Okay, good, good. You're catching on. Slow. You have an extra hour of sleep today. And you're slow. He says, we know 
that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. And this is, this is Paul's just acknowledgement that there are people who believe there are many gods and many lords. He's not giving them credence. He's not lending legitimacy to their existence. He's just saying the simple fact is there are a lot of people who think there are a lot of gods, and God is the greatest one. We saw that, right? Even, even, even in the concept, concept of many gods, he is God of gods, right? He is king of kings and lord of lords, right? He is, he is all of those things. He's greater than all of them, but they don't even exist, really. Okay? So he's saying, even if there are, yet for us, this is gold, yet for us there is but one God. Okay. For us there is but one God. And then he describes it, and this is beautiful. He says, one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. That's beautiful, isn't it? That it, that it all comes from him. And it all is for him. It is all about him, right? It, it, is, it is him at the top, and all of the rest of it just, just goes back to him. It all revolves around him. He's the center of it all, right? One God, one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ. Whew. One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. A lot of commentators say that, that there are two ideas going on here. One, in both of these, the Father, the Father from whom are all things, is talking about creation. Right? It's talking, talking about initial creation. The Father from whom are all things, and the Son, the Son by whom are all things, is, is maybe talking about initial creation. So the Father and the Son both involved in creation, right? The Father is the, is the, is the brains behind the operation. The Son is the muscle behind the operation, right? He creates through Jesus, right? And then there may be a sense in which the second statements for both of them have to do not with the old creation, but with the new creation, eternal life. Right? So, so the Father and the Son and the Spirit, by the way, but Paul doesn't talk about it here, are involved in the creation of the world, everything that exists. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but Paul doesn't talk about him here, are involved in the new creation of making someone a, a new creature in Christ. Right? So in a sense, he may be talking about both of these ideas when he says, there's one, one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and Jesus, one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And then he uses this word, exist, when he says all things exist for him, we exist for him, and we exist through Jesus Christ. So the Father is the one who's in charge not only of creation, but of, are you checking with me? Not, not only in charge of creation, but of new creation, and he executes the old creation through the Son, and he also executes the new creation through the Son, right? That's good, and, and maybe, it'll, maybe it'll sink in later. That is beautiful. And there's this big theology bomb right there where he says, this is the way everything works, and this theology of one God, one Lord, who, from whom it all came, for whom it all exists, through whom it all came, for whom it all exists, by whom it all exists. That idea reigns over whether we eat meat or not. Right? It, it is that concept of the gospel and redemption that reigns over whether or not we eat meat sacrificed to idols. So he doesn't just say, I want to talk to you about meat sacrificed to idols. He says, I want to talk to you about these cosmic ideas of <coughs> creation and new creation and the Father and the Son and their roles in it all because that's what matters most. Okay? So in verses 4 to 6, he basically says, yes. If you boil it all down and the question is, can I eat the meat? Can I eat the meat sacrificed to idols or not? The answer is you can. You can because there's only one God. 
And there's no such thing as an idol in the world. And everything that exists, including the meat that was sacrificed to the idol, every, including the wood out of which the idol was made, all of it came from God and all of it exists for him. All of it came through Jesus Christ and all of it exists by him. Right? So in some sense, in verses 4 to 6, he says you can. But that's not the question. That is not the question that we should deal with regularly. We live our lives in whether we can or cannot. That's not the question that needs to reign over us. The question that needs to reign over us is, should I? Because Paul is going to say a couple times in this letter, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Can I or can I not is not the question that we need to ask. Should I? If it passes the can I test, it moves to the should I test. Don't go straight from the can I test to doing it. You've got to think about your brothers and sisters, and that's what he does next in verse 7. He goes from... Yes, to but, or however. Look at verse 7, he says, however. He's talking in verses 4 to 6 about their knowledge, about the existence of only one God. He says, however, not all men have this knowledge. And specifically, he's talking about brothers in the church. He says, some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. He says, you guys can eat it as if it were not sacrificed to an idol because there is no idol because there's only one God. But there are some who don't have this knowledge, and so when they eat, they eat it as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and they are sinning in doing it because their conscience, their conscience forbids it. Now, their conscience is ill-informed. Their conscience is not lining up with Scripture. We want them to understand there's only one God and there's no such thing as an idol, but they're not there yet. And so we've got to deal with them where they are. He says, some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. This is tough. This is tough because Paul seems to be saying here that what may be sin for you may not be sin for someone else. Oh, that is deep and tough. In other words, could I do this thing in absolute freedom and absolute confidence in Christ with absolute justification scripturally that I can, and yet if someone else were to do that very same thing, they would be sinning? And the answer there is yes, because Paul seems to say here that you guys could eat the meat. You can eat the meat. And these guys cannot because if they do, their conscience is defiled. And he's going he's gonna to show us that we're not just talking about a little problem here. We're talking about big time sin. Big time sin if this guy over here eats the meat sacrificed to idols. Big time sin if I help him eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Big time sin. He uses the word like destroy, defile. It's a big deal. So there are things. There are things in Scripture that are sin for everybody. And I want you to be very careful here with this text and the things that I'm teaching you today. <coughs> not, to try, not to try to make what is definitely sinful not sinful. They say, oh, my, my conscience is fine with adultery. I commit adultery. My con- I'm, I'm totally free in Christ. I'm totally free in Christ to commit adultery. My conscience doesn't have any problem with it. You can't do that. You can't do that. Oh, I'm, I'm to- totally fine with, with murder and, and stealing. My conscience doesn't have any problem with that. I'm totally free in Christ, right? No, you're not that free in Christ. You are not that free in Christ. In fact, we need to go back to chapter 6, verse 9 to get this. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There are things, a lot of things, that are sinful for everybody. 
There's no way to make them unsinful. They are always sin for everybody. And there are other things that are in this neutral gray area. This is confusing, isn't it? There are other things that are in this neutrally, morally neutral gray area where for some it would not be sin and for others it would be sin and eating meat sacrificed to idols seems to fall right into that category. Right? But that categor- those categorizations are under the heading of can I? Can I do this? Yes and no. That's not the question we're asking today though, right? It's not the question I want to be asking myself all the time. It's not can I, but should I? And that's what he talks about next. So he says, some, not, not everyone has this knowledge, some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse 8, he gives the key to the whole text. Verses 8 and 9, that, that's the, it's the hinge on which it all swings. He says, but food will not commend us to God. Food doesn't commend us to God. What commends us to God? Jesus. The grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's what commends us to God. It's not food. Food doesn't make a difference. Kind of like circumcision. Remember, remember last week he said circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. Food doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you eat. You don't stand before him on judgment day and say, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian, and he lets you in because you're a vegetarian. This is not the way it works. He says, we will, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. He says, stop thinking that that's what matters. That's not what matters. What matters is verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He says to these guys over here, you've got to be really careful. You've got to be really careful about what you're doing over here in your liberty, in your freedom in Christ, which is legit, right? He said that in verses 4 to 6. He says this is legitimate freedom. Legitimate freedom in Christ. He says you've got to be really careful how you use that because you might cause that guy over there to stumble. And that's a big deal. Well, I think we read that word stumble and we think, oh, so, so what if he stumbles a little? So what if that guy stumbles a little bit? He's going to show you how big of a deal that is. He's going to say, if you sin against him, you sin against Christ. So take care how you use this liberty of yours. Take care how you exercise your freedom in Christ so that you don't become a stumbling block to that guy. And then he begins to develop why becoming a stumbling block to that guy becomes such a such a problem. He says, for, in verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, his conscience who says it's bad, right? His conscience who says it's bad and you cannot do it, that's where his conscience stands. His conscience, if he is weak, will be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. So this guy, this guy over here, who says you cannot eat the meat, looks at that guy who may be a church leader, who may have been a Christian for a longer time, who may be certainly more mature in his faith. He looks at that guy and he sees him eating the meat sacrificed to idols and then he is strengthened, not in a good way. He is built up, but not in a good way. He is built up to do what his conscience says is wrong. And you should not do something that your conscience says is wrong. You shouldn't shouldn't disobey your conscience, partly because your conscience is given to you by God, but he should not do what his conscience says is wrong for him, that is sin. And so that guy is somehow responsible and is inflicting a wound on this guy by encouraging him to eat the meat sacrificed to idols, which his conscience says he cannot do. 
You tracking with me so far? This all comes to a beautiful conclusion when Paul says, therefore, I'm not eating any meat. That's the easy answer. But we don't just want to get there. We want to, we want to go on the journey to get there. Look what he says. Someone sees you who have knowledge dining in the idol's temple. Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Verse 11 says it's a big deal. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. Ruined. Through your knowledge. Through your knowledge, which is acted upon without love, that brother is ruined. What other words do you have there translated for ruined? destroyed. He perishes. This is not some kind of, oh, he's a little bit offended or he's a little bit, he's a little bit hurt. He's destroyed and ruined. And then Paul kicks it up another notch when he reminds you that for that brother, Christ died. He is not some second class citizen. If you're over here, you don't look at those guys as some second class citizens who are just barely in the kingdom. Christ died for that guy as much as he died for you. And you need to let that weigh in on how you behave toward him and your responsibilities to him. So be careful how you use this liberty of yours that you don't cause him to stumble. That you, through your knowledge, without love, ruin him. And Christ died for him. And then he makes it even more intense in verse 12 when he says, And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So you're not, you're not just dealing with a relationship with this other brother that you're responsible to. Christ is in him. He is so closely identified with Christ that what you do to him, you do to Christ. And that's a principle that runs all throughout the New Testament, right? We see it in Paul's life. Paul knew it well. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what he said? No, he said, why are you persecuting me? Because he's so closely identified with the church... That we are his body, right? Members of his body. Jesus talks about it this way. He says, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done it to me. So if we sin against that guy, we're not just sinning against that guy. We're sinning against Christ because Christ dwells in him. You see how all of this is not a question about can I or can't I? Can I or can't I doesn't matter. Should I matters. I guess can I and can't I does matter. If the answer is no, then you can't. Under any circumstances, you can. If the answer is yes, I can, that doesn't mean you can. It doesn't mean you should. You need to let love weigh in on this, and you need to let the reality of that brother weigh in on it all. And this is the conclusion that Paul comes to. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that will not cause my brother to stumble. This is beautiful. What he does here is he doesn't, he doesn't mandate he doesn't mandate some list. He doesn't outright condemn the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. In fact, he upholds the principle that you are free in Christ to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. He upholds that principle, but he restrains his freedom, his very real freedom. He voluntarily restrains it for the sake of his brother. That's what it looks like to live in the church. That's what it looks like to love your brothers. Is not always to be exercising your own liberty and your own freedom and your own right, but voluntarily restricting your own freedoms, voluntarily restricting your own rights, voluntarily restricting your own pleasures for the sake of your brother. 
because I don't want to destroy him, and I don't want to sin against him, and I don't want to sin against Christ. So when I am deciding whether I can or cannot or should or should not do something, i got to be thinking about him. And that means we got to be thinking about each other. When we make these decisions in morally neutral areas, we got to be thinking about each other. Does that make sense? i got like 12 applications today. <clears throat> we may be here a while. Number one is this. I'm try- I really want to boil it down so you can take it home, but I don't, I don't want you to take home, Chris said, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's not the point. The point is think, love, pray, serve each other. Live in community. Number one is this. Knowledge is essential, but it is not sufficient. Love must reign. We must know and love. And one example is the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? This guy, travel along the road, gets beat up, robbed, left for dead. Who comes along? A priest. A priest who knows the truth, right? Who knows all of what the Old Testament says about the care for the traveler and the sojourner and those who have been hurt or afflicted. Priest comes by, and what's he do? Nothing. Because he lacks knowledge? No, because he lacks love. He does nothing. Then the Levite comes by. Levite knows just as much as the priest does about all those things, right? And what's he do? Nothing. Why? Because he lacks knowledge? No, he's got knowledge. All he can stand, he doesn't have love. And so he walks by and he doesn't do anything. And then comes the Samaritan. And he walks up on the deal, and what's he do? Everything he can, and then some, to care for that person. Right? I'm not messing this story up, am I? Have you ever heard this story before? That's the way it works. That guy has knowledge because he knew what to do, right? He knew, I have a responsibility to take care of this guy. Uh, This guy is hurt and I must help him. This guy is my neighbor. And I must love him like I love myself. He had knowledge and he had love, which led him to the action. I want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like the priest and the Levite who have a bunch of knowledge but don't have any love. Knowledge and love. One commentator said, There is something higher than knowledge. Knowledge without love is, after all, only another form of ignorance. True that. Knowledge without love is just another form of ignorance. Some of you got a lot of knowledge. A lot of knowledge. Operate with love. Always operate with love. Application number two has to do with this whole gospel business about knowing and being known. It is most important not that you know, but that you are known by God. And we talk about that a lot, about how you get to be known by God is through Jesus Christ, by repenting of your sins and believing in Him. Application number three has to do with restricting your freedoms for the sake of others. We, in America, we love our rights, we love our freedoms, and we don't want anybody infringing upon those freedoms, right? But in the church... People infringe upon them all the time. And we should voluntarily pull them back for the sake of the brothers. Paul gives some counsel, some pastoral prescription. One commentator called it this. Paul's pastoral prescription. He says, number one, we should affirm the strong's knowledge. We should go over here and say, you're right. You're right, there's only one God. You're right, there's no such thing as an idol. You're right, you can eat that meat. Number two, we need to commend love that builds. We need to commend love as that which builds up. Knowledge doesn't build. Knowledge puffs. Love builds. Number three, we need to qualify the strong's conclusion. The strong has said, I can, and therefore I will. We need to say that's not a good conclusion. 
Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You've got to think about this other guy. We need to qualify his conclusion. Should you do this thing? And then number four, we need to expose the damage caused by Strong's boldness. We need to tell Strong Man, if he just operates in his freedom, oblivious to his responsibility to his brothers for whom Christ died, if he simply operates in his freedom, he is destroying that brother for whom Christ died, and he is sinning against Christ specifically. And then, the application is we need to end up like Paul. Paul does this all the time. He says, when I'm with the Jews, I'm like a Jew. When I'm with the Gentiles, I'm like a Gentile. Right? I'm all things to all men. Why? So that I may by all means win some. Go over to chapter 10, verse 23. We're going to revisit this in about four weeks. So we'll come back to this later. But I want you to see his conclusion. He's talking back again about meat sacrificed to idols. Listen to this. If this is not a beautiful summary of what we've talked about today. He says, all things are lawful. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. That word edify means build up. Same word we used earlier. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and all all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols... Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Here's his conclusion. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. He says, I could do all of these things. I got all kinds of freedom in Christ, but it's not always expedient to exercise that freedom. Sometimes the best thing for my brothers, sometimes the best thing even for lost people in my neighborhood is that I restrict, voluntarily, gladly restrict my freedoms for their sake. This is anti-American. You realize that, right? This is not the American ideal, but it's what Scripture says about the church, and, and I'm part of the church before I'm an American. Application number four is grow up. If you're this guy, grow up. If you're this guy living over here where you still think the idols are real and the sacrifices are real and you doubt that there is only one God, grow up. Mature. You've got freedom. Grow in your knowledge. Grow in your love. Grow up. I think we got we, we doggone this guy over here all day, right? we got a dog on this guy for a while. He's responsible to grow. Get in the Word. Learn that these idols are not even real. Learn about your freedom in Christ. Learn about how you don't... You're not commended to God by works. You're commended to God in grace, in Jesus Christ. Learn that, not just to know it, but to practically experience it and to live in it. Grow up. One commentator said this. He said, In general, educating children and adults to responsible behavior and moderation in morally neutral matters proves much more successful than absolute prohibition or indulgent permissiveness in producing mature Christians. He says the best thing you can tell people to do is grow up. Not don't eat, don't drink, don't go, don't play golf, don't mow your grass. That's not the best thing I can do for you. The best thing I can do for you is to grow, to say grow up. Know Christ. 
Love him. Love your neighbor. Live in freedom. Grow up. Not just give you a bunch of rules. I don't want to give you a bunch of rules today. Think about each other's lists of rules aren't all that helpful. They just really aren't all that helpful, right? But maturity, thoughtfulness, love, that's helpful. That's helpful. So when you get ready to do something that is in this morally neutral area, think about me. Think about the kids in this middle section. Think about my children. Think about the people in your Sunday school class. Think about the people in this room. And love them more than you love your freedom. If you love your freedom more than you love them, it's a problem. Some of us are dangerously close to loving our freedom even more than we love God who provided the freedom. And that's idolatry. It's not just about can I. It's about should I. And should I is informed by the love of Christ, love for Christ, and love for our brothers. Got it? Stand together and pray. God, help us to live this, not just to know it and understand it, but to live it. To love you, to love our neighbors, because you have loved us with this extravagant, sacrificial, unbelievable love. You've considered us, and that's outrageous. You sent your son to die for us, to take our sin, and that is incredible. You have redeemed us from the curse. You have forgiven us of our sins by grace through faith. You have reconciled us to yourself through the sacrifice of your son. It's amazing. And we want to live in response to that. Not to earn it, not to pay it back, simply to respond rightly to what, what you've done for us. God, I know there are some that, that don't have a relationship with you by grace through faith in Christ. They've not experienced forgiveness and salvation. God, I pray that today they will. That today they will hear you call their voice saying, follow me. Today they will see that Christ died for them. And today they will repent and believe and surrender their lives to you. And then live boldly for your glory. God, help us all to respond rightly in Christ's name. Amen.